the perception is that hunters are very successful and there's a lot of them out there killing deer. The reality is very different. Across the U.S., only 41% of hunters who went afield in any given year shoot a deer. So think about that. Less than half of the hunters that go afield are successful. That blows my mind. I knew it wouldn't be anywhere near 100%, but uh, I, I would have guessed, and I think most hunters would have guessed, that it would be higher you know, than at least half of us. Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and we have another great episode lined up for you this week. Uh, if you're a deer nerd like myself and, and you love seeing and hearing about all the, the deer harvest data from, from your state and, and other states around you, or you, you just like discussing the latest trends in deer hunting and deer management, uh, then this episode is for you. We're going to be diving into the NDA's 2024 deer report that we just recently released with wildlife biologist and NDA chief conservation officer, Kip Adams. Uh, Kip's been on the podcast a few times, always uh, one of our most popular guests, and he's going to walk us through uh, the, this recently released report to hit on harvest trends from state to state and region to region, as well as some of the biggest topics in deer hunting from this past deer season. Uh, including things like the use of drones for deer hunting and deer recovery, using both regular and cellular trail cameras and, and the legality of that on public and private lands across the country, uh, as well as states offering the opportunity to harvest a velvet buck uh, and just a whole lot more. So be sure to stick around for that conversation. Hey, before we get started, though, this week's episode is brought to you by NDA partner Savage Arms. Uh, Savage Arms is one of the world's largest manufacturers of hunting rifles and shotguns, uh, delivering innovative products for more than 125 years. I've been looking at one of their Axis XP models that I, I would love to pick up before this fall, uh, which offers a great mix of quality and affordability. And uh, personally, I'm, I'm looking to go with a 308 caliber, but I'm still open to suggestions. If any of you want to drop a recommendation uh, in the review section, if you're listening on Apple Podcast, I'd love to get some feedback from you. But to pick your Savage Rifle or Shotgun out for the upcoming season, check them out at SavageArms.com. Hey, one more thing before we get on the phone with Kip. On Thursday, February 1st, which is tomorrow, if you're listening to this episode on the day it goes live, uh, we'll be opening registration for our 2024 Deer Steward courses. Uh, that includes an in-person Deer Steward 2 course in August in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. Uh, it also includes two different in-person Deer Steward modules, uh, one on property design and hunting setups that's going to be held June 21st through the 23rd in Allendale, South Carolina. And we're also going to have a learn and burn, a one-day class on July 13th on the Back 40 property in Michigan. So it's three really cool opportunities to get some hands-on deer and habitat management training this year. And of course, you can take our online Deer Steward One course and our, our online modules, Deer Steward modules, at any time uh, by going to our website at deerassociation.com. And looking under the NDA programs menu heading for the Deer Steward link. And guys, with that, let's jump on the phone with Kip 
to talk all about our 2024 deer report. Well, hey, Kip, thanks so much for coming back on the show once again. Um, man, it's it's hard to believe that we're already back here to talk about another annual deer report. Uh, I, I feel like the older I get, the, the faster these things seem to roll back around on me. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm a fan of the show uh, as well as a fan of the organization. So I'm glad to be here and share some information. And uh, I agree with you on how quickly this stuff seems to come around. Uh, it seems like we just got the last one done and uh, we're already into the, the 2024 issue. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I know you guys in, in the conservation department, um, it probably really feels like it, it rolls back around quick on you because you, you start to process much earlier with collecting all this data and then uh, the, the communication side of it that, that I work with, uh, you know, we just get to compile it into something nice, to, a nice publication to, to put out there for everybody. But yeah, you guys, you guys are involved during a lot longer period of the calendar year working on this. So uh, I'm sure it does feel like it, it rolls, rolls back around pretty quick on you. It does, but I guess as we get older, uh, everything rolls back around a little quicker, which uh, which is good, right? Because then at least uh, our new deer season will be here before we know it. So uh, we'll we'll look at that that way. That's right. That yeah, we'll keep it we'll keep it positive. That that's true. With that, uh, before we before we dive into the 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 data of the deer report, I, I want to want to ask how your how your deer season was though. Oh, uh, we certainly had a good time. I'm very lucky that both of my kids hunt and. Uh, uh, we have a family deer camp, so lots of family, lots of friends hunt there. So, uh, you know, it, it's a very traditional Pennsylvania deer camp and uh, the hunting is fun. Just being at camp with, with those guys and girls is fun. And of course, then everything else that goes along with it, all the meals, you know, uh, all the relationships, uh, you know, that are made there and extended there. So that part is all awesome. We're very lucky. Um, from a, a deer harvest end, we... We are lucky. We've had several really good deer seasons in a row. So we were due for one to be a, a little slower. And uh, this past year was slow for us. So uh, we, we were lucky we got venison in the freezer, but uh, we didn't see, and by we, I mean my family, as well as uh, folks at our camp, uh, we didn't see as many deer as we normally do. And uh, for the first time since 2011, we didn't kill a buck at our camp. So, uh, we passed a lot of smaller and younger bucks, uh, never saw the uh, the biggest bucks that we had on camera, and uh, we we had pictures all the way right through of the last day of our firearm season. So they're there. Um, we just didn't see them this year. So um, the uh, the deer definitely got the jump on us. Um, but we <laughs> sure had a good time getting together and uh, chasing them for uh, all of archery and rifle season. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's the main thing. I definitely find that the, the older I get, it's definitely become much more about uh, just the experience and like you said the the time there with family and friends and and just the whole the whole process I, I can't remember who I was talking to here recently but I was I was telling them that uh, you know I'm, I'm not as mad at them as I used to be the the deer you know <laughs> I just I don't have to I don't have to shoot one to feel like uh, it was it was a good season or a good hunt so that's right. As, as you get older and as you've harvested more deer, you know, you, you start to look and just take, you know, a pleasure in some of the smaller aspects, you know, like just, just seeing deer or seeing, you know, a unique deer. We have a, a piebald fawn that's probably 90% white uh, that was on oh, our wow. farm this year. We only had a couple of trail camp pictures of it. Um, I got to see it. Um, I watched it for probably 15 minutes one night uh, during rifle season. So uh, that was cool. So, yeah. Uh, you know, we, we take pleasure in some of those smaller things like that. And, you know, just being able to be at camp uh, with, with your campmates uh, is pretty cool too. So uh, 
Um, I agree with you that, uh, you know, it's not all about the harvest anymore. Uh, I still like to shoot deer as much as anybody, but <laughs> I'm glad that I can, can find pleasure in some of the, the finer points as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. And heck I've gotten to where, you know, this time of year, I'm kind of, we were talking before we started recording about, you know, these super cold temperatures we've been having, but I've been kind of waiting for the weather to break a little bit. I, I just love this postseason time of year, getting out there and, uh, you know, exploring new public land and, you know, diving into some of those areas that you kind of tried to avoid during the season, you know, some of those thickets, bedding areas, that kind of stuff. And of course, soon we'll be able to look for sheds and all that. But, uh, man, I just enjoy, it's gotten to work for me. It's a whole, you know, process throughout the year and, and not just, you know, that, that few months of, of getting out there and chasing them. It's, it's just a whole, it's a yearly thing now. <laughs> That's right. We're pretty lucky in that regard. Oh yeah. Yep. Absolutely. But with that, yeah, let's let's dive into some of the the 2024 deer report data here. Um, you know, as a, a self proclaimed deer nerd myself, I, I love digging through the numbers and and looking at the the charts and the graphs and just seeing how how deer hunting and and deer harvest you know in my state compares to to some of the others here around me. Um, but if you would, I guess just kick things off today by uh, explaining to the audience, maybe those who aren't familiar with the deer report, you know, what, what's the, what is the purpose of the deer report? And, you know, why do we go through all the trouble of, of putting that together? Well, the, the report is a compilation of harvest data, um, age structure data, and other uh, trends and issues that are going on in the whitetails world from around the Whitetails range. So we survey every state uh, wildlife agency to collect information on the last year's deer harvest, numbers, age structure, et cetera. Um, and then we look at the biggest issues and threats that are impacting deer herds or deer hunting. And then we collect information and write about them. And, and the idea is, you know, it's kind of like a state of the union address on, hey, what's going on in the deer world? Uh, we started this back in 2009. So we've been doing this for a long time. And uh, we have some chapters in there that remain the same every single year, like antlered buck harvest and antlerless deer harvest. And then we have other chapters that are that are different every year because it just happens to be what's most impacting uh, deer that year. You know, it's the biggest issue. So from a, from a deer enthusiast end, it's a great way to keep up on the deer world. Are things good? Are they poor? What's happening? Um from a natural resource professional issue, it's a great way as well to keep up on, hey, what's going on in other states? You know, maybe in other states having a similar issue and this can provide some information on, on ways that they can solve that. So uh, it's meant for deer hunters, uh, deer managers, um, the general public as well. Anybody that's interested in deer, you know, can find information here that will teach them a little more about current snapshot of what's going on in the whitetail world today. And and. The to clarify that the data in our report is from the 2022-2023 season, um, not not the most recent deer season. Why is that? You're exactly right. And that's because we survey the state wildlife agencies in September of each year. So for our 2024 deer report, the one that came out earlier this month, or at the beginning of January, we sent the survey to the state wildlife agencies in September. They provided all the data. We analyze it. We write it. And then it goes back to the state wildlife agencies to review to make sure that, you know, there are as few of errors as possible. And, and there's always some revisions that are necessary. 
through that whole process, that takes until December to, to, to complete. And then we release it early January the next year. So this year when we released this, most states still had deer seasons going on. You know, the 23 into the 24 deer season. So uh, that's why the harvest data is from the most recent deer season that was complete. So the season that, you know, many states, you know, will go into February of 24, their deer season. Those agencies will get that data, analyze it. And then in many cases, they won't even have that available for a few months. So, you know, so that's why the 2024 report can't be the 23 into 24 deer season. Because uh, it just comes out too early. So, but it is the most recent season where it's all complete, and the agency has the data that are able to share with us. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So some guys out there are just now getting into the best hunting of the year. So, yeah, it would uh, the report would have to come out uh, in the middle of the summer, I guess, if we were going to try to cover this season for sure. That's right. There's some states, you know, in the the deep south or in the southeast, you know, that the deer are just starting to rot now. And uh, so, you know, much of the country that happens in November, but not everywhere. And uh, so, yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a bunch of deer hunters that, you know, that whole November thing, well, that's more about Thanksgiving for them. And, you know, maybe some, <laughs> some upland bird hunting or something, you know, the best deer season doesn't start for a few more months. Yeah, absolutely. Now, whenever, you know, we discuss any kind of state deer data like that's included in the deer report here, uh, we inevitably get asked, you know, how does the state know how many deer I killed or or how many deer we killed as a state or or how old they are? You know, I don't even have to check it in. Nobody looked at my deer. And I know we've talked about this before and on the previous uh, episodes where we've covered the deer report, but for those that may be tuning in for the first time or, or hearing you talk about this for the first time, how do they get that information, particularly in these states that that maybe don't have a, any kind of physical check in? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, that's a good one for hunters to ask. You know, it's important that they do realize where that data comes from. So the data in our report comes from the, the respective state wildlife agencies. And uh, we, we have a note in there that says, you know, that they all don't collect them the same way. Some of them do a mandatory reporting where. Every deer that's shot, you know, it's required by law that the hunters report them. We know that not every hunter reports all of them, but many states then, do. They, there's a way that they can develop a correction factor so they can estimate how many didn't report. For example, my home state of Pennsylvania, kill a deer, you have to report it. You can do that online. You can send in a report card. You can call it in, do whatever you want. Well, then the state wildlife agency, our, our Pennsylvania Game Commission, will go to numerous meat lockers throughout the state. And collect data from, you know, biological data from the deer that are there. You know, they can collect age data and et cetera. So that is great. Well, from those deer they're looking at, they can then go back and check and say, hey, did these hunters report these or not? So from that, they can develop, a, you know, an idea of, okay, here's about the percentage of hunters that do report their data so that they can then correct for the reported number and estimate what the actual number was. That's one way states do it. Some states will send a hunter survey out after the season to a subset of hunters. And then from that, you know, ask them how many days you hunted and how many deer you shot and all that. So suffice to say, there are different ways that agencies can get that information. Nobody has check stations today where you have to to check every deer in, you know, like many states did in the past. Those are a thing of the past. Hunters loved them. As a hunter, I love those. They were cool places oh, to go. Yeah. I worked a lot of check stations for state agencies over the years, but uh, that, that's just a thing we don't have anymore. And that's okay because 
the agencies are able to just sample a certain segment of the hunting population and from that be able to estimate what the total deer kill was. And they can collect a little bit of biological data, like age data, and from that estimate the percentage of, you know, both the buck and the antlerless harvest that were one and a half, two and a half, three and a half years old and more. So just like we can predict, you know, uh, who's going to win the next presidential election after, you know, somewhere around 5% of the vote is in, you don't need every vote taken to recognize who's going to win. Same thing with our, with our deer season. So I think some agencies, their constituents believe that they do a little better job than others, but uh, suffice to say, nobody gets them exactly right but all the agencies get really, really close. And they certainly get close enough to the actual number to, to, to be able to use that to manage that deer population. So we have chapters in some old reports that actually delve into that a little bit deeper if somebody wants to go back and read a little bit more about it. But uh, in a nutshell, that's all about just sampling a, a subset of the deer hunters. And then from that, using statistics to be able to estimate what the total harvest was. Yeah. Yeah, and I can, I can say as a former wildlife technician here in Georgia, you know, we did, or I had to do just what you were saying there uh, that they do in Pennsylvania. You know, I, I had a, a quota and I would have to go around to uh, the the deer processors and, and the counties here around me and collect data from deer. Like you said, the, the sex, age, and, and that kind of thing. And uh, that's, you know, what they would use to, to get some of that information. So obviously the hunters that killed those deer didn't have any idea, you know, that their deer was used for that sampling. So that that's where I think a lot of this these questions come from. People just don't realize what's going on, you know, behind the scenes. Uh, nope, you're exactly right. And many agencies do a better job today making that type of information available to the hunters. And man, that's a good thing. You know, the more transparency there is and the more hunters understand where that data comes from. And then when they get to see it after it's hard or after it's uh, compiled and analyzed, that makes them more likely in the future to supply information when asked. And since they have a better understanding, they have more confidence in, the, in what the agency shares from a data standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the, the first sections in the deer report covers our, our buck harvest, uh, our buck harvest data and, and trends. Um, so I guess let's just start there as far as how, how did hunters fare during that 2022, 2023 deer season and and what are some of those buck harvest trends we're seeing kind of across the whitetails range yeah it was a i'm gonna say i'm gonna start by saying it was an average year for buck hunters but i'm gonna caution people on that because i say it's average it was within one percent of the buck harvest the year before but we are at historically high buck harvest right now so even though it was about the same as the year before it is really, really high. We're shooting about 3 million antlered bucks a year. So uh, it's the good old days for from a, from a buck harvest end relative to numbers we're shooting. So we are shooting historically high numbers of bucks and we're maintaining this year after year. And the reason I say it's the, the good old days for it because it was the oldest age structure of a buck harvest ever recorded. And what, what I mean by that is 42% of all the antlered bucks that were shot were at least three and a half years old. We break, we ask states to break them into age categories, one and a half, two and a half, or three and a half and older, all grouped together. 42% of all the bucks were in that three and a half plus year old age class. So uh, oldest ever recorded, 
We shoot way more bucks today that are three, four, and five years old uh, than those that are just one and a half years old. So uh, that's a huge difference from what we had you know, a decade or certainly two decades ago. So really high harvest numbers and the best age structure ever. So uh, that makes it a pretty good year. Yeah. Yep. For sure. And <laughs> it's funny because you, you get so many hunters out there that think, you know, that their neighbors, or you'll hear them complain. And again, a lot of this is, of course, on social media where everything is amplified. But, you know, there's so much complaint that, well, the neighbor shoots anything that walks. But, you know, obviously, when you look at the data, that, that's not the case. You know, there's obviously a lot of hunters out there that are letting those younger bucks walk uh, just because of what you said right there. The, the percentage of adult bucks are three and a half and older bucks that are now uh, making up the, the harvest. Uh, you know, there's obviously a lot of, of younger bucks that are that are making it through. So it's it's definitely a good trend to see. That's right. And, you know, it wasn't that long ago that many states, uh, the majority of their harvest were just one and a half years old. Um, you know, and many of them were 60 or 70 percent of the buck harvest was one and a half. That is not the case at all today. Some states do better than others for sure. But, you know, the it, it is a rare fact today to have any state's buck harvest, uh, the yearling segment of it be higher than 50%. So uh, basically every state out there today falls in line with, hey, they're protecting at least the majority of those one and a half year old bucks, which is exactly, you know, the whole QDM philosophy, you know, just protect the majority of that first age class. So um, that wasn't the case, you know, in the, the, the recent past, but that is the, that is the norm today. So it's essentially the hunting culture has entirely changed relative to that buck harvest. So now there's cer certainly hunters that still will shoot the first buck they see. And, and, and that's okay because we have such good age structure today that those, you know, occasional bucks that people are taking like that, they don't negatively impact the, you know, the herd or the harvest at all. So uh, we're at a really good spot. Well, in fact, we have the best age structure for bucks in the wild population that we've had in at least the last 100 to 150 years. And, uh, and that's a direct testament to, to, to hunters and, and our natural resource professionals. Yeah. Well, kind of zooming in a little bit on a, on a more, I guess, regional and, and even um, state level, what, what kind of, uh, what regions and, and states are, are killing the most bucks out there? Well, we look at, and we actually, for, for folks who haven't seen our, our harvest report, we include, you know, state by state basis of who shot the most bucks. Year in and year out, Texas wins that. But Texas is huge, right? It is way bigger than all the other states. Um, so what we also include is we include, you know, who were state by state lists of bucks harvested, but then also bucks harvested on a per square mile basis. That makes it a lot more comparable between states. You know, it's much more apples to apples. And uh, now you can start feeling, okay, like, Maybe I'm in a smaller state, but let's see how I can compare and, you know, what we have from a deer habitat standpoint. And, uh, and that one's a lot of fun to look at. My home state of Pennsylvania is always in the top five for that uh, buck harvest per square mile. Michigan usually leads the country with that. They're, they're always in the top one or two as well. But the cool thing with that is this year, the top five are Pennsylvania, Northeast state, Michigan, Midwest state, Maryland is a Northeast state. South Carolina, Southeast. Hmm. So we basically have states from around the country. You know, it's not just a certain region. There's states all over that are in that top five list. So, uh, so that's pretty cool. You know, that lets us know that deer hunters in 
It's not just a certain state's deer hunters that are the luckiest. You know, deer hunters throughout the Whitetails range are enjoying great hunting seasons. And then because if you enhance habitat where you live and, you know, and you're a good steward and shoot the right numbers of does and pass some young bucks, man, good deer hunting can be had everywhere. And that's exactly what our data shows. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's good having the uh, the harvest per square mile figure thrown in there because obviously you would have a hard time contending with Texas on uh, on anything when it comes to to deer harvest and uh, if if you weren't breaking it out by by square mile for sure. So what about um, what about the antlerless harvest? What kind of trends are we seeing uh, with with the antlerless harvest across the whitetails range? Well, last year's antlerless harvest was also within one percent of the year before. But the trend here is very different from the buck side. With the bucks, we said, you know, we're at historically high levels. Antlerless harvest has really dropped most of the years over the past decade. So that's headed in a different direction and is way below buck harvest in many years. So that lets us know, you know what? This is the reason why deer herds are growing so fast in many cases, because we have slowed down on the number of antlerless deer that we shoot. And luckily, this past year, we did shoot more antlerless deer than antler bucks, but that's only about the second time in the last six or seven years that's happened. We'd been having this spree of shooting more bucks than antlerless deer, and, th- and that's not a good recipe for success across most of the whitetails range. So, uh, so the answer is average year for antlerless hunters as well, that we're right where we were the year before, but we need to be seeing that one increase. That, that one's got to grow, but it was valuable that, that we at least did shoot more antlerless deer than bucks. So it was a slight turn in the right direction. We just need to keep the foot on the gas and uh, increase the distance between antlerless harvest and antler buck harvest in the in the foreseeable future. Yeah. A- any thoughts or theories on on why that is as far as the declining doe harvest? If if numbers are increasing overall, why why are we shooting less, I guess? Yeah. And I think the big thing for that was, uh, you know, certainly our organization is a, is a, you know, one of the largest advocates for QDM philosophy, which means right number of deer for the habitat and then have deer in all age classes. Well, we get the right number of deer for the habitat by shooting the right number of antlerless deer. So through the early 2000s, hunters were harvesting more antlerless deer than antlered bucks. It was a great time. We were beating the drum. Agencies were giving out a bunch of doe tags. Hunters were answering the call. And then around 2012 or kind of the early 2010s, a few things came together that made it so we didn't have to shoot as many does. One, many states were doing such a good job harvesting antlerless deer that a lot of herds just became in balance with what the habitat can support. Once that happens, then you don't need to shoot as many antlerless deer, you know, if you're not trying to reduce deer herds. Well, that coincided with two of the worst hemorrhagic disease outbreaks that we've had in the past hundred years. Two of them happened within five years of each other. And a lot of states lost a lot of deer. That also coincided with millions of acres of CRP land that was withdrawn from uh, you know, the, the wildlife programs and put back into crop production which took millions of acres of extremely valuable wildlife habitat away from deer. And the last thing then, this is when we had increasing uh, coyote and predator numbers across much of the Southeast, and we had greatly reduced fawn recruitment rates. So 
We ended up with a deer herd that was closer to where it needed to be. And then all these other factors negatively impacted it, which meant now agencies didn't want us to shoot as many antlerless deer. However, it's kind of like turning the Titanic. It takes a long time to convince hunters to shoot more antlerless deer. And then when they said, okay, you don't need to shoot as many, we responded to that pretty quickly. But as deer herd started to grow again, and essentially over the last five to 10 years, now it's hard to get hunters to decide, okay, I'm going to shoot more analyst deer again. So that's really where we are right now. And, you know, th- there's a pendulum to anything. We were shooting a lot of analyst deer. The pendulum swings the other way to where we're not shooting as many. Well, we need to get ahead back to the, the way where, you know, we are shooting more. The, the opportunities are there. All hunters have opportunities to shoot more antlerless deer than they're shooting. And so now it's just a, an educational thing, you know, where the hunters to recognize, yes, it will help them and it'll help the deer herd if they shoot some more antlerless deer. So uh, hopefully we're kind of at the down point of uh, that antlerless harvest and we can start increasing that over the next few years. That's exactly what we need. And uh, that will help deer herds and our future hunting opportunities. All right. And, and again, looking at it, at a more granular granular level which which uh which regions and and states are are doing uh the best job of of shooting the most antlerless deer well the southeast certainly gets after it a bunch which is very good (laughs) um part of the northeast and the northeast is a little different because once you get to new england um you know those are areas that just don't have as productive a deer herds so you don't need to harvest as many antlerless deer but there are parts of the northeast like Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, Delaware, that mid-Atlantic region, that's a real sweet spot for, for deer, <laughs> deer hunting and deer management in that it is an extremely productive region. Lots and lots of fawns on the ground, lots of hunters, you know, lots of good deer habitat. So that part of the state or that part of the country shoots more antlerless deer uh, than every other region. So I'm lucky to live in Pennsylvania and be part of that. Um, so. Pennsylvania gets after it a lot. As a regional, the Southeast really gets after the antlerless harvest. The Midwest, surprisingly, uh, shoots fewer antlerless deer than we would expect. That's a problem when we get into the real productive areas of Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, and especially in Michigan. The Michigan DNR has been begging hunters for the last several years to shoot a bunch more antlerless deer and and are having a hard time doing so. To give you an example of kind of the differences, uh, just like we do the, the antler buck harvest per square mile, we do the same for antlerless. And in Pennsylvania, we shot almost six antlerless deer per square mile. That's a lot of deer. <laughs> and uh, what that means is we also shot a lot of bucks, but we shot more than one and a half antlerless deer for every buck. In general, what I tell people is, hey, that at least needs to be balanced. Most places need to be shooting more antlerless deer than bucks. Pennsylvania, we shot 1.6 antlerless deer per buck. That's a strong ratio. Fast forward to Michigan, particularly Southern Michigan, where you have some of the most productive areas in the country. Um, They are way, way behind that. They're like at 0.7 antlerless deer per buck. So what that means is they are just harvesting a tremendous number of bucks, but way under harvesting the antlerless segment, which is not good. So that deer herd becomes too abundant. And, you know, and I'll stop right here for a second to say, hey, I'm a deer hunter. I like to see deer. So I totally <laughs> understand. Well, oh, yeah. You know, when, when I'm not seeing deer, I'm getting itchy while I'm hunting. 
I get it. As hunters, we want to see deer. We want to see a lot of deer. But from a health standpoint, you know, there there is a limit to the number of deer we should see. And in places, particularly in Michigan, and, and their agency called their hunters out as well. We kind of called their hunters out this year, too. Um, that's one area that needs to dramatically increase the number of antelopes deer they're shooting to uh, to improve the, the health of that deer herd and uh, increase the health of that habitat. Gotcha. Well, another another cool section of the deer report that always kind of piques my interest is the the deer harvest by weapon type. Um, as someone who who likes to hunt with uh, whatever's whatever weapon is is legal at the time, it's it's always interesting to see how successful hunters are using you know these different methods. So, can you talk a little bit about that and and what the data looks like in in the latest report? Uh, what what are what are hunters uh, most killing deer with and and how does that kind of break down you know from one region to another sure we we started monitoring this you know in the early years of these reports which which go back to 2009 because that was a time of tremendous growth in the archery industry a lot of states were just uh, introducing crossbows um introducing crossbows then into the archery season so we wanted to see hey how let's watch the total harvest how is this changing, you know, with was this new implemented? How is the, the breakdown of the total harvest changing? So we monitor this every year. Essentially, what we see now is of all the deer shot, about two thirds of them are taken during the firearm season with either rifle or shotgun, whatever, you know, whatever you have to use in your state. About a quarter of all the deer are taken with a bow or a crossbow. And then a small percentage of only about 9% are shot with a muzzleloader. And, uh, this has stayed pretty constant the last five plus years. Um, so 15 years ago or 10 years ago, this was growing every year in the archery component. You know, they were taking a higher percentage. And a lot of hunters today feel like, you know, geez, the bows are taking all of them. And uh, the reality is rifles and shotguns still take two thirds of them. What we also see is we can take a look at this percentage that has increased, you know, in the, in the archery category over the past 15 years or so. But we don't see like it's not really changing the total number of deer harvested. So it's not like those bow hunters or the crossbow hunters are taking more to add to the total harvest. Essentially, those are the same people that used to shoot their deer with a rifle that just more of them today are shooting them with a bow or a crossbow. They're taking advantage of some of those earlier seasons or earlier opportunities. It's always warmer in September or October, you know, than once we get into November or December. So uh, it's fun to watch this one to understand, is this changing? And if so, you know, uh, is it actually changing the number of deer shot or not? And in this case, it's really not. It's just kind of a spreading out that total deer harvest over a few months, as opposed to uh, a few weeks during the firearm season. And I know, some people look at this and say, well, why, why do you lump bow and, and crossbow together? Um, why is that? Man, I'm a, I'm a data guy and I wish we didn't have to. The reality of it is a lot of states can't break those out. Um, the way they record harvest, um, bow and crossbow go in the same. So some states do have good data on whether it was shot with a vertical bow or a crossbow, but uh, the reality is most don't. So the best we can do, or I guess the, the finest we can divide those harvests up is uh, bow and crossbow get lumped together into the archery category. Yeah. Yeah. Which I know, you know, my, my home state here, Georgia, when you check a deer in, you know, it doesn't, uh, during archery season, it doesn't differentiate whether you shot that with a bow or crossbow. So 
um, yeah, that would be one of those states that just would have no way of, of supplying that data. So and I'm sure there's a lot of others like that. Yeah. And some hunters, I mean, they, they think that it's entirely separate user groups, those that use a vertical bow or a crossbow. And I think at one point there was a pretty big separation there, but that line is becoming more blurred now. And uh, and I know a lot of bow hunters, hardcore, you know, compound or, or tra- not so much traditional, but compound bow hunters that uh, it's not uncommon for them to pick up a crossbow, at, you know, a few times during the year. They may hunt the majority of the season with that compound, but certain stand setups or, or certain conditions, they'll grab that crossbow and go. So uh, it's it's not as definitive of a line between vertical bow and crossbow users as there was at one point. No, no, I, I have <laughs> I have a crossbow, a compound and a recurve and, and I don't mind shooting a deer with any of them. So yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. It sometimes, you know, a situation might call for, for one over the other, or you just might you know, feel like using one over the other. So, yeah, I think you're right that that line, there, there's not as much of a, a division there uh, as there once was. Now, what about what about muzzleloaders? I know, you know, again, it, here where I'm at, they they just don't seem uh, very popular at all. It's very limited hunting opportunities. Of course, we have such a long firearm season. It, there's not, I guess, as much of a need for them. But, you know, I did notice in the report that there's there's some states that are killing quite a few deer with muzzleloaders. Can can you talk about that? Maybe some of the states or, or any particular regions where that's a, a more popular option? Yeah. And you know what? That is very regional, regionally specific. And that has more to do with opportunity than anything else. And what I mean by that is New England hunters by far dominate the, the muzzleloader category, way more than any other region. The reason being is that they have less opportunity in many of those states to harvest an animal this deer with a firearm. So in some other, many places or cases, the best opportunity they have to shoot a doe is with a muzzleloader. You know, they, they just simply either can't do that with a rifle, they can't get a tag or that's not, you know, available in their unit, um, but they can still shoot a doe with a muzzleloader so that more than anything else is what drives that statistic. And if you take a look at the, you know, in our report where we'll have the top five lists for many of these things, for the percentage of the total harvest that was taken by muzzleloader, uh, four of the top five states are in the New England region. So uh, that's that speaks to that more so than anything else. Yeah. Yeah, I know when I lived in Kentucky, I was a lot more likely to pick up that muzzleloader uh, than, than down here in Georgia. And it's just, because of what you said right there, you know, in Kentucky, we had, a, I think, a 16-day firearms deer season. And so by using a muzzleloader, you just about could double that. There was about 12 or so days of muzzleloader hunting. But, you know, here in Georgia, you have like a three-month firearm season. So there's just really no reason to, to break out a muzzleloader unless that's just something, you know, you enjoy using. But otherwise, you have plenty of opportunities to, to use a high-powered rifle down here in the south. Now, moving uh, moving on to, let's see. Yeah, there was a section in, in this year's deer report about, which was pretty cool to, to see, uh, it broke down which states and regions had the most successful deer hunters. So kind of some some bragging rights there. Uh, can you talk about that? Kind of give us a breakdown, which uh, which states hunters, uh, you know, are doing, are doing the best job of filling those tags? This is a really interesting chapter. And I think this is one of the best chapters in the whole report. Um, in fact, I'm going to give a talk on this hunter success rates uh, at the upcoming Southeast Deer Study Group meeting, uh, the, the biggest deer biologist meeting in the country. 
um, in, in February this year. Um, this is really interesting, partly because we know that hunters are the primary way that the state wildlife agencies manage deer herds. But then they influence that harvest in different ways. You know, harvest is influenced by, you know, the number of hunters on the landscape and the, the bag limits and the season lengths and all these things. So we said, all right, let's take a look at just who is most successful. Most states today, you know, you buy a license, you get one or more buck tags, you know, you get multiple antlerless tags. So the average hunter today has the opportunity, you know, to kill multiple deer. Most hunters look at that as, you know what? This is an easy way to overharvest our deer herd. Most non-hunters guarantee with all of those opportunities, it's easy to overharvest. Well, where you are in Georgia, when you get your tag, you get two buck, you know, you can kill two buck and 10 antlerless deer. So that's a lot of deer. So we said, hey, that's the perception, but what's the reality? So we asked all the states, we asked them, what percentage of your hunters shoot at least one deer? So what percentage successfully harvest a deer? And then what percentage shoot more than one deer? And uh, the perception is that hunters are very successful and there's a lot of them out to killing deer. The reality is very different. Across the U.S., only 41% of hunters who went afield in any given year, shoot a deer. So think about that. Less than half of the hunters that go afield are successful. That blows my mind. I knew it wouldn't be anywhere near 100%, but uh, I, I would have guessed, and I think most hunters would have guessed, that it would be higher you know, than at least half of them. So uh, it varies by state, and it varies a lot by state, but on average, only 41% of the hunters even shoot a deer any given year they go hunting. Pretty crazy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. If you want to look at that regionally, and, uh, you know, again, folks can look at the report and see state-by-state changes, but regionally, the Southeast dominates. 56% of the hunters in the Southeast kill a deer. I think that has to do with something you just said, very long firearm seasons. The Southeast in general has a lot of deer, you know, liberal bag limits, lots of opportunity, and lots of places to go. Add all those together, and, and it allows hunters to be very successful. That's pretty cool. And there are fewer deer hunters per square mile in the Southeast than there are in the Midwest or the Northeast. So what you have is great opportunities in slightly fewer hunters than the Midwest, but only about half of the deer hunters that you have per square mile in the Northeast. So fewer hunters certainly helps from a pressure standpoint. Long seasons, lots of opportunity, lots of deer. Man, that combines to the Southeast folks being really successful, way more successful than the other regions. So 56% of the Southeast shoots a deer, only 40% of people in the Midwest do. That's a pretty big drop. About 35% of Western hunters kill a deer, and only a third of hunters in the Northeast will shoot a deer. That is just blows my mind. One out of three. So I know you killed a deer this year. I killed a deer this year. That puts us in the minority of hunters. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, yeah, it is. But I, you know, I look back and there, there, there's been years along the way when, when I didn't fill a tag. So I've been on that. I've been on that other side for sure. Also, it, I guess it makes me wonder too. You know, how many, how many folks might buy license and and just not end up getting out, or maybe you know they only get out one or two weekends for the entire season and. You know, there's a lot of certainly a lot of circumstances out there where that could limit somebody's ability to to be successful. So I guess it all all evens out. 
Now you're right. And there's folks like you who you're a super avid hunter. I'm a super avid hunter. A lot of your listeners here are, you know, very avid. So, you know, we tend to think that other hunters are like us. The reality is, you know, they're not. You're right. There's many people who get a license that may not be able to go at all or may just get that to hunt a weekend or two weekends. You know, I can't imagine only hunting a couple weekends. A year. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, there are some that, you know, that's all the chance they get. So um, I'm tickled to death that they buy a license, you know, and they hunt whenever they can. But uh, yeah, there's a, there's a wide range out there relative to, to how often people can get out and get after deer. Yeah. Well, I know this isn't as fun of a topic, but we'll go ahead and, and knock it out because it is an important one. And that is uh, deer disease issues. That's something that's covered in the deer report. Um, so I guess kind of can you touch on the, the highlights of that, of what's going on in the, uh, the world of, of deer diseases? Uh, obviously, CWD is a, a, big, a big thing that we're hearing you know, more and more about. But uh, what, what can you tell us about that and, and some of the other ones? Yeah, the two big ones for this are, are CWD and, uh, and hemorrhagic disease. And uh, fortunately, 2023 was a pretty light to moderate year for hemorrhagic disease across most of the, the range. There were uh, a couple states that had some pretty bad, bad outbreaks. Uh, if you were a hunter in one of those areas, you don't want to hear me say it was a pretty light year. I get it. <laughs> um, but uh, across most of the deer's range, uh, hemorrhagic disease was not that bad last year. So, so that's a good thing. Um, from a CWD end, uh, the disease does continue to spread. You know, we're up to 31 states now, a um, couple new states in the Southeast with Alabama and Florida and, you know, places we hadn't seen it yet. So that, that's not good, but there are at least some successes now or some you know, reasons to be, uh, confident that, that we will beat this disease someday. And, and I'm, I'm an optimist and I firmly believe that we will. You know, we have a better idea today of how to predict where to find it than ever before. That helps because that allows us to find it in new areas quicker. And uh, the quicker we can find it, the better job we can do limiting that spread. So that's a very good thing. Um, we also have some successes relative to uh, just testing for it. Some new techniques, uh, new technologies that help us uh, turn around quicker those those samples. And what I mean by that is, we, did, we had a chapter in one of our deer reports just a few years ago uh, that showed that the average test turnaround time, meaning from when you dropped that head off to be sampled, you didn't get your results for two to three weeks. That's a long time to wait. You know, that's a huge burden on a deer hunter. Well, this year, my home state of Pennsylvania had an average turnaround time of five days. Man, that is a huge victory. You know what? So if you're processing your own deer, you're probably hanging that deer for five days anyway before you cut it up. Or if you take it to a processor, it's probably longer than that before you even get the meat back. So suddenly, it's a much better opportunity for hunters to help with sampling and be able to do the right thing by not consuming venison if it turns out it is CWD positive. So I think the real gain here with this is, all right, we have the technology that can do this. It's a matter of just getting the samples to where you have a machine and back. So, you know, if we increase the number of those machines and testing sites around these different states, you know, we can continue to get those turnaround times even lower. And if it's more convenient for hunters, then that means they're more willing and more likely to sample and more likely to share those. All that is good for the battle against CWD. So that, that's kind of one of the things there that, there's still a lot we don't know about this disease, but 
hey, we're starting to learn a few things that can help us. And that's a very positive and a very bright spot on the future as we continue to fight CWD. Yeah. 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 Unfortunately, it's getting it's getting closer and closer to us uh, here in Georgia with the uh, with cases in Alabama, Tennessee. And like you said, uh, now northwest Florida. Um, so, yeah, not not looking forward to that that first case in, in our state. But uh, yeah, we'll just keep keep being vigilant. Um, I, I will say, as I look through the report, you know, obviously, EHD, CWD, the tick-borne diseases, um, you know, s- stuff I expect to see in, in the deer disease update. But uh, what I wasn't expecting to see was was rabies and COVID. <laughs> what was, what's kind of the, the story behind those two uh, being in the deer report? You know, that we want to share information, particularly well from the rabies end, just to show another disease that deer can get. Rabies, you know, is a disease that all mammals can get. And, you know, we think of that as being in things like foxes and bats and raccoons. Um, we don't think about it from a deer perspective, but there are deer every year that test positive for rabies. We share this information with hunters to make them aware that, hey, you know what? It's a good idea to put on some gloves, you know, when you're field dressing deer. Now, I grew up, nobody in my camp ever wore gloves when they field dressed. So I get it. But I'd say, well, you know, I do today, one, because... I know how many deer test positive for rabies and other things that I don't want. And importantly, I buy those gloves that roll up all the way up my sleeves. Man, it's a great way to keep blood off my camo and my my orange clothing. So uh, that's a great reason for that. But I don't want rabies. I always have cuts on my hands. So uh, we share this just so hunters realize, hey, this is a real issue. Um, You know, you're not likely to run into a deer with rabies, but it's absolutely possible. And it's just wise to throw on a pair of gloves when you're field dressing to keep yourself safe. So that's kind of the rabies end. The COVID end, because this is in the news all throughout the year, as in a lot of it is just clickbait and news. You know, they're trying to sell the story where, you know, scare humans that they're going to get, you know, COVID from deer. And so part of what we want to do is, hey, let's share information to let people, hey, here's really what's happening. Is this an issue or not? And hey, here's what the studies we're looking at. Here's what they're designed to do. So uh, so that hunters can get feel good about the information they're getting. We're not, we don't sell these reports. So we're not selling news. We just want to share information that, that makes hunters a little more knowledgeable about what's really going on. So that was the reason uh, for the COVID, COVID part of that. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm with you on the gloves. I've, I've finally started to use them here in the last few years. And, and like you said, part, partially because... You know, you don't want to expose yourself to to anything that uh, that that you don't want to get. But but also, yeah, I was always bad about you know you don't you don't think to pack that stuff. Then you get out there and you you feel dress the deer, and the next thing you know, you got blood all over your backpack and your pants and your gear and everything that you that you carried in. So yeah, those those big uh, those big gloves that roll all the way up up your arm are, are nice, really nice. So yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm a firm you know believer in those. Yeah, me too. You know, and a lot of our listeners, you know, they hunt in areas where there's feral hogs as well. And of course, feral hogs carry brucellosis, which is a huge threat to, to humans. Um, so same thing. If you have those gloves while you're deer hunting, if you shoot a hog, you'll happen to field dress that. You and I have a mutual friend that uh, that got brucellosis a few years ago and was deathly ill for quite a while. And uh, it ended up, you know, they think it was from the blood. Actually, when they shot the hog, a, a drop of blood likely got in his eye. And uh, so if it, just a tiny drop can get in your eye and give you the disease, you know, certainly if you have a cut on your hand, you're going to get it. So um, 
throw a pack of those, uh, you know, latex gloves, uh, in your, in your hunting kit or your harvest gloves. And, uh, it's going to allow you to hunt a lot more this deer season and not be in bed sick or, uh, or laid up somewhere. Yeah. Yep. Don't, don't need that for sure. Well, another uh, one really cool section in this year's deer report I thought was, uh, on velvet buck harvest. And that's something that, uh, the interest has, has really seemed to increase in, in recent years. And, and the number of states that are offering that opportunity has increased. Uh, so, so what can you tell tell us about our, our prospects for harvesting a, a velvet antler buck? Because that's something I, I've yet to do myself. So what, what states are offering that? And, and is that kind of a, a regional thing? Or what, what kind of trends are you seeing there? Man, I was really surprised with this. If you'd asked me before this report, hey, like, what states can you go to for a velvet buck harvest? Um, you know, there's a couple that immediately come to mind, Kentucky, South Carolina. Um, those two immediately jumped Tennessee, you know, out of the season here recently. There's a couple other states that have had proposals to add them. And that's why we picked this chapter, because there are some additional states saying, hey, maybe we want to do this. So we said, all right, let, let's just take a look at what's out there and see how many states actually allow it now. You know, basically the season opens early enough for that. And where are they? It blew my mind that there's 17 states whose whose seasons <laughs> open early enough to offer velvet buck harvest. I couldn't believe it. Um, Southeast dominates the country with that, um, but there's a lot of states in the West as well, and kind of uh, the Western Midwest. So here where I am in the Northeast, there's there's nothing around me that allows that. But uh, I'll say this was way more states than I was expecting to answer uh, yes on this category. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Uh, yeah, just in the last few years, Tennessee has an August season now, which is just seems crazy. I know a lot of people are taking advantage of it, and then uh, you know Mississippi just added a season here recently. So the, there's definitely definitely an interest there, and uh, I certainly wouldn't mind shooting a velvet buck myself. But it just uh, the opportunity has not presented itself. It is a it is a possibility here in Georgia. We have a, a fairly early September opening, so you still get. Uh, most of the bucks have shed by the time our season's open. Our season opens, but but the opportunity's there. You, it, if you can get one that first weekend or so, um, you know you have a chance anyway. But yeah, and uh, I should clarify cool. when I say those seventeen state, th- that doesn't mean that they have a velvet buck season. That's just you know the the deer project later say okay, our archery season or whatever the earliest season is opens up early enough that at least some segment of our bucks are still in velvet. Yeah, so. Uh, some states, like you're right, like Tennessee, they they wanted to go and have a specific velvet buck season. You know, not everybody is like that. So it has more to do with timing of when those early seasons open more than anything else. Right, right. Gotcha. Well, one thing I, I noticed a lot in my Facebook feed this past deer season that, you know, I really hadn't heard much about previously was the use of drones with you know, with thermal imaging to recover deer, it seems like that just that service just like blew up this year. And uh, I thought it was great that we had a section here in our, our deer report about, you know, the, the legality of drone use um, during deer season, whether it be for recovery or, or actually to use scouting and, and deer hunting. And uh, it seems to, to vary a good bit from state to state. Can can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we got all kinds of questions this throughout the last summer, especially uh, in fall, relative to the use of drones. What was our position on them? Did we think it was allowed or should be allowed or not? Did it cross, you know, 
fair chase standards. A lot of agencies were asking us, a lot of hunters were asking us. So we said, hey, let, let's just see what the national look on this is. And uh, it was all over the board. Um, what's interesting with this is we collect the data, analyze it, write it, and we will send this back to the state wildlife agencies to review before we publish it, because there's always additional revisions. And we want to get this as right as possible. Sometimes the agencies didn't understand how, you know, or what we were exactly asking with a question. Um, sometimes the, the data just wasn't available early on and it is later, whatever, but lots of revisions. There were more revisions on the drone chapter than any other, in part because, you know, there was a lot of confusion even among the states on if it's allowed or not and what it's allowed for. And uh, if you take a look at that chapter, 18 states said, yes, you can use drones during the deer season. So we asked them that, and then we asked them, you know, kind of more specific questions. Can they be used for scouting? Only 11 states said they can be used for scouting. Can they be used for game recovery? 13 states said yes. Can you use them with thermal imaging? 13 states said again. So the fact that 18 states said you can use them, but then even there, there's some confusion on exactly what you can <laughs> use them for or not. Um, and I'm not criticizing the states at all. There's a huge gray area in a lot of places with this. This is one of those things where the technology is just way ahead of what the laws are, you know, relative to those. And you have a lot of states that are scrambling right now to put laws on the books, you know, to make sure that they continue to have fair chase standards for hunters, but at the same time, giving hunters every opportunity to recover, you know, any game that they shot, big game, deer, bear, or whatever. So, you know, that's the ethical side of it. So, they have to walk that fine line to make sure that they're not becoming unethical from a you know unfair advantage to harvest it, but yet you want to be as ethical as possible and recovering everything. So I don't envy states with you know trying to, to draft the language for this one, but I think as much as anything, it's good that this information is out there now, so hunters know. Okay, does my state allow it or not? And if so, what can I use it for? And then this provides a baseline for I think states now to go ahead and advance drone use in their state to make sure that it's as eth used ethically as ethical as possible, you know, to satisfy hunters and, uh, and our lawmakers. But uh, this, this is not the last word on drone use by any means. This has been a big chapter, generated a lot of attention, and, uh, and that's only going to increase for the foreseeable future. Yeah, yeah, I'd say this is one we're going to be hearing about for, for seasons to come. Uh, I know one of the issues being created or that I've that I've heard and and that I think some of the states are really having to deal with is um, they allow you know drone use for recovering a deer, but then you run into the issue of okay this this drone flies over and finds the deer you shot, but it's still alive. So now if you go in there and finish it off, it's aiding <laughs> it's aiding you in the the hunting of this deer uh, rather than you know it becomes hunting rather than recovery. And so, man, like you said, there's just a lot of gray area there that's going to have to be kind of hashed out in in the years to come. Yeah. The, and one thing that was interesting with that, too, is some of the states provided comments about how it can be used. And, you know, there are some states that say, you know, you can't use drones and then hunt that area the same day. Um, that You know, there's maybe some language in there that allows them to get around that situation you just talked about. So uh, I'm confident that we can come up with good solutions to that. There's always going to be somebody that breaks the rules. You know, you, you can't make rules so restrictive that, you know, just, you know, for the one guy who, who just simply can't follow them. So there's always going to be somebody that doesn't. 
But fortunately, most hunters follow most of the rules. Well, that, you know, very different than, you know, the, the Bubba hunters that we talk about or the slob hunters of the past. So um, most hunters today do a really good job. And, you know, that that's impressive. I like that. And, uh, and I'm pretty confident that we can come up with some good drone rules as well that will satisfy the majority and, uh, and keep the vast majority honest. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard to be against something that can give somebody the opportunity to recover a deer that otherwise might not be recovered. But yeah, you certainly, like I said, you, you gotta, there, there's a line there you gotta watch where it, it becomes, you know, unethical or not, not fair chase. But so yeah, hopefully, hopefully we'll be able to, to iron all those details out, but I kind agree. of, uh, along those same lines, uh, another chapter in in our deer report dealt with the the legality of of trail cameras, uh, both regular and cellular trail cameras, um, on both private and public lands, and uh, so that was an interesting interesting one to me. And uh, one thing that that surprised me, I guess, it stood out when I when I first looked at that is I was kind of shocked to see that there's actually a few states that where it's not, or a couple states where it's, it's not legal to use regular trail cameras, even on private lands. I, I was, I was not aware of that, but can you, can you talk about that? And, and you, you know, you can go ahead into the, the cellular trail camera use and just kind of an overall outlook on, on how this plays out um, across the country. Yeah. We've been asked to comment on some of these uh, trail camera proposals over the last few years, most notably in Arizona and Utah, um, when those states were looking at outlawing those. And, uh, you know, personally, I'm a huge trail camera fan. I'm, I've been using trail cameras since my graduate student days, you know, back in the early 90s. Uh, <laughs> as an organization, we are pro trail cameras. You know, uh, it engages hunters. Um, you know, there's a whole host of reasons that it's good. However, in those cases, we recognize, particularly the Arizona one, um, where you get into these real arid areas, and you would have, you know, a water hole where the majority of wildlife in an area was coming to. And, you know, you might have 20 or 30 trail cameras over one water hole and it was causing all yeah. kinds. That was less of a trail camera issue and more of a, you know, user competition issue that they were having. So, uh, I, you know, I can understand, you know, kind of why Arizona went that route. Um, I was glad to see the vast majority of states still allow the use of trail cameras on private land and on public land, too. So that was good. Um, we wanted to take it a step further, though, because cellular cameras are becoming so big now, and we're starting to hear from states that are considering outlawing them, you know, again, from a fair chase perspective. So we asked also about the use of uh, cellular cameras. And uh, once again, the vast majority of states allow those on private land. Uh, 45 states responded to our survey. 42 of them said, yes, you can. So uh, the only, again, it's Arizona and Utah, but, but they didn't allow trail cameras on private land. The only other one that doesn't allow cell cameras on private land is Wyoming. That, that was the other addition there. Um, and most of them, uh, 37 out of 45 states, allowed cell cameras on public land. So there's a lot of talk going on about them today. But for right now, still, they are legal to use uh, in the vast majority of states on both private and public lands. And, uh, and I'm, I'm glad that's like that. I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I enjoy them. I enjoy uh, unfortunately, a lot of the WMAs I like to hunt around me, um, you're not going to get a signal to use a cell camera, so <laughs> it's not going to do you any good. But uh, but I, I do. I, I like I like putting them out. Uh, man, I, I love it. It's uh, I guess it's a dopamine hit. You know, you get that little notification on your phone and you're like, oh, what you know, what, what what just walked in front of my camera? It's, 
you like seeing those pictures pop up and uh, it, it is it adds a whole you know a whole nother aspect to yeah. the the overall deer hunting experience like we talked about you know early on it's um i, I enjoy running them and yeah I, w- I would hate to see them become illegal on uh on public lands but you know i understand like you said there's certain cases like there in arizona where uh you know, you got to do what's best for, for the wildlife, uh, over just the opportunity to run some trail cameras. Yeah. And you know what, from the cell camera end, uh, I run cell cameras as well. I really like them. Um, I think there's a huge advantage, you know, being able to do that on public land, particularly if it's an area that, you know, gets a lot of users. Think about it. Like how often do you go check your trail cameras? So if, if it's on public land and everybody's checking the trail cameras, you know, that's a lot more activity, a lot more send, a lot more pressure. Well, you know, if you, with your cell, you don't have to do that as much. So that's not, it's helping you. Yes. But it's helping other hunters as well by limiting pressure. And, uh, you know, I, I like it that the, the cell camera manufacturers allow you to, um, Hey, get a picture real time if you want, or, you know, you can make it so you only get those pictures every, you know, four hours or six hours or whatever. So, uh, you know, there's ways around some of the arguments about, you know, a fair chase and knowing an animal is there. So, um, um, but I think it's a very healthy discussion to have, you know, between state wildlife agencies and hunters. And uh, and I'm glad that, that we're able to have that in, in most places today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We'll kind of we'll, we'll wrap things up here with with what I think was a high note in the deer report as well. There was a, a section in there on uh, new hunter programs and the availability of, of learn to hunt and adult mentored hunting programs. And uh, it was good to see a, a lot of states with those programs in place, can you, can you kind of touch on those and um, you know, whether that's kind of a a growing trend or what's going on in the, in the world of, of new hunter programs? Yeah. You know, from our end, we're certainly huge on the, uh, the adult mentored hunting programs. Um, We talk all the time about our field to fork events and, and those programs. Um, So it's great to see a growing number of States have similar programs where people can learn to hunt, you know, uh, when you and I grew up, uh, things were very different. I grew up in a hunting family that just everybody hunted. I know that was not the case for you. You were interested in it, but you didn't grow up in a hunting family. Fortunately, you know, you had others that, that could help mentor you and teach you. Well, people today are just further removed from either being in a hunting family or knowing somebody that hunts. So there's more of a need than ever before for these learn to hunt programs, you know, and these adult mentor programs. It's not the easiest thing in the world to do, you know, or to, to learn, you know, you're outside, you can be in harsh conditions. Geez, you have a firearm or a bow. It's not like learning to go play golf or bowling. You know, this is a whole <laughs> different thing. And it's it's intimidating. It can be dangerous, you know, if, if you don't know how to dress appropriately for weather. So hunting itself, fortunately, is very safe. But some of the places we can put ourselves sometimes aren't the safest if you're not trained in either using harnesses for a tree stand or cold weather gear. So these programs that states have now, you know, the learn to hunt and adult, these are perfect. You know, these provide an opportunity for people who didn't grow up with the opportunities that you did or, or I did, you know, to find a place to be able to do this. You know, they, they want to procure some of their own uh, protein as well. Maybe they're just outdoor enthusiasts and they, they, oh man, that hunting stuff looks cool. Well, it's a hard thing to start without any help. So. We help everybody we can, but we can't help everybody. So I'm glad a growing number of states do have programs to help those people, help get them in the door, you know, provide them some information and education, provide them some confidence to do this. 
Um, so that's why we just wanted to say, hey, who has them? And we're glad that, you know, at least 30 states have a, a formal learn to hunt programs. Um, there may be others out there that, you know, that have something like this, but it's just not a formal program. But over half the states have them. That's good. And uh, about half of the states have adult mentored programs. Youth hunts are great. We do a lot of youth hunts. I love them. But adult mentored hunts, that's where we can really move the needle on recruiting a new hunter because then that adult can buy his or her license. They can buy the gear and then they can take somebody else, including kids, hunting. So uh, that, that's a bright spot for the future as well, that so many states have those programs. And hopefully looking at that map, if their state uh, does not, maybe that's a good incentive uh, to, to get more of those programs in a few of the states that, that currently don't have them. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely have always had a, a soft spot for, uh, you know, people trying to, to learn to hunt that, that don't have that, that mentor or somebody to, to show them the ropes. Because like you said there, I, I didn't initially growing up, nobody in my family hunted, but I, I just took a, a notion that that's something I wanted to do. And uh, man, one of these programs would have uh, definitely flattened the learning curve a little more. <laughs> I, maybe I wouldn't have spent so long trying to kill my first deer, you know, if, if if I had a program like this back then. So, yeah, it's great to see so many states uh, implementing that. And, and hopefully, like you said, that be nice if in another year or two that that map uh, is is completely green in our report, you know, showing all the states have have those programs in place. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you look at states today have learned to trap programs and you have a lot of hardcore hunters that haven't trapped that, you know, they'll get in and take those, you know, or learn to ice fish or whatever. So uh, it just makes sense to have the learn to hunt as well. You know, uh, we're not just drawing from a hunting segment. We're, there's a larger segment of society than ever before that doesn't hunt. So it's a big it's a big pool of candidates. So uh, I'm glad that we have. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the, and the need is there. Like you said, we we put on a lot of field to fork events, but uh, man, we get a lot of folks reaching out, you know, through email or social media and, and they're, you know, they're wanting to, they're wanting to learn to hunt and they're, they're just trying to find somebody to show them the rope. So um, these, these programs are great, great resources for that. But Kip, uh, man, thanks so much for, for again, carving out uh, over an hour here of your time to, to come back on the show. Um, for those who would like to get their own copy of this, this, 2024 deer report which is you know completely completely free anybody can can download that what's the uh what's the best way for them to do that uh yeah, go right to our website at deerassociation.com uh, the nda programs tab has the deer reports icon under it click on that and they can get this report or any of our other deer reports going all the way back to 2009 well good deal we'll put a we'll put a direct link to that 2024 uh, report in our, our show notes as well so they can check that out and uh yeah appreciate it kip that sounds good always a pleasure to talk with you uh on here and uh i'm i'm glad uh always glad to talk about deer and, and deer <laughs> hunting so uh this this is a fun one for sure and uh hope folks can go and grab that deer report and uh look through that and, and just realize how much information is available out there uh about deer that uh they can learn a little bit more and maybe share it with their neighbors all right, guys, that wraps up our interview with Kip Adams. Uh, thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, uh, and, and several more. So about anywhere 
you could listen to uh, listen to podcasts. You should be able to find us there. Or you can just go to DeerAssociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us uh, climb the, the podcasting charts and be more visible to uh, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website, again, at DeerAssociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter and uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of, of free content right there on our website, covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots, habitat improvement, um, deer management, you name it. Uh, if it's deer hunting or deer management related, we got some good content right there on our website available to you. So check that out. And of course, you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends.